I'm Nick Ninton, and welcome to Now to Next, the podcast where I interview some of the top experts and professionals all across the globe to talk about what's happening now and what you can expect next. Hey, everybody, Nick Nanton here, and I'm very excited to have you here for an episode of Now to Next, the podcast where we talk all about what's happening now and what's coming up next. As usual, I have a great guest I'm honored to have here with me today. I'm going to give you a bit of his bio, then I'll bring him on. And uh, feel free, by the way, to type things in the comments. Let us know uh, if you have any questions. Uh, we're happy to answer those. This is an interactive dialogue between us all. I have Chris Voss, the author of Never Split the Difference, which I've recently decided is one of my top 10 books of all time. So it's a, it's a big deal. I'm glad to have him on. Chris is the CEO and founder of the Black Swan Group, which specializes in solving business communication problems using hostage negotiation solutions. That's why it's so fun. Prior to founding Black Swan Group in 2008, Chris spent 24 years working for the FBI, four of which were spent as the agency's lead international kidnapping negotiator, which we'll go into. As I said, Chris is the author of the national bestseller, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It, which draws on his experiences as a hostage negotiator for the FBI. He takes what he learned about negotiating in literal life or death situations and shares how those skills can be applied to our working lives. So here today, we're going to learn how to improve negotiation techniques that work in everyday life from the man, the myth, the legend who is part of the team that revolutionized how the FBI approaches negotiations. Hopefully, I did a good enough job there. Chris, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for coming on. Nick, I'm happy to be here, man. It took a long time. I, <laughs> let's get to it. Let's make it happen. I love it, man. So well, I want to talk about the book. Obviously, if you don't have the book, there's an audio book. I'm a little disappointed you didn't read it yourself, Chris, but the narrator does a good job. Uh, we need to get, you can get the audio book, the print book, whatever. Let's, let's hop right in. There's the first question before I even went live. Someone made a comment that I'm interested to get your feedback on. And he said, whether you should split the difference depends on the situation. I do agree that there's value in the words when someone suggests you split the difference. The value comes from knowing that person is willing to move from their current position slash offering to one that may be more appealing to you. But a negotiator should never completely discount an offer to split the difference as a blanket policy. What say you, my friend? It's lazy. Yeah. I get bad news for you. It's lazy. And I don't know anybody of all the, you know, I studied a lot of negotiators. None of the top performers are saying like, yeah, man, let me tell you about all the great deals I made by splitting the difference. I don't. You know, the negotiators I admire. Oprah Winfrey, some of the greatest negotiations on the planet. Oprah Winfrey would never say, yeah, you know, we split up the difference. We compromised. It was great. I don't I haven't heard that story. Warren Buffett. I don't Warren Buffett telling shareholders, yeah, you know, we split the difference. And here's how much more money we make. I mean, I don't know. I ain't hearing it. I don't care what kind of negotiator you think is good. Donald Trump, you're a Donald Trump fan. When did Donald Trump ever stand up and said, yeah, I split the difference? Who are you negotiating heroes? I don't, I don't hear those stories. Sorry. Uh, great, great feedback. And talk about, you give a really good example of compromise in the book, uh, a husband and wife example. Let's, let's share that one. Because I think it's a very black and white, that's why I use it, I'm sure, example of how splitting the difference and, and compromise typically doesn't work out. I'm going to give you three. Let's pull the trigger on three. I'll try, I try not, I won't make it too long. Number one, you know, husband and wife talking about whether or not I should wear brown shoes or black shoes with my suit. All right, let's, let's split the difference. I'll wear one black, one brown. Now, 
very much in the news these days. Colin Kaepernick, whatever side of the issue that you're on, even if you're with him, you know that the other side is incensed that Colin Kaepernick took a knee. You know they're incensed. The players in the NFL are fighting, and the NFL is finally not going to give them a hard time about taking a knee. As if taking a knee is an insulting thing. Taking a knee was splitting the difference. Kaepernick originally sat out entirely, met with his former special forces guy who had a heart-to-heart with him. The special forces guy says taking a knee at a fallen comrade's graveside is a sign of respect. Kaepernick started taking a knee in order to show more respect and not less. Look what happened with splitting the difference there. Splitting the difference corporate environment. Two companies have merged. This story is related to me personally. Two CEOs are going to go co-CEO. One is a very progressive company. They're killing it. They're doing a great job, and they're merging with an older, more established company that wants to bring on the new company who's a tremendous rival but also a tremendous asset. The new company is moving into a phenomenal new facility. It's going to be a great headquarters and a great training facility. The old company says, ah, that's extravagant. We can't justify spending that kind of money on our people. So they split the difference and they do a dual headquarters thing, which then gives their executives no good place. And they water down better housing for the executives, better environment for the executives, better training. The innovative CEO, having had something good for his company, completely gutted, ends up quitting. They spend way more money than they ever would have on the extravagant expense, and they lost half of their leadership by splitting the difference. I got more examples where splitting the difference is bad than anybody else can come up with splitting the difference being good. I'd be happy to hear, yeah, we split the difference. Look, if you think splitting the difference is good, then you think the U.S. Congress does a great job. (laughs) Okay, very well said there. You talked about, uh, in the book you mentioned it too, Oprah Winfrey as a negotiator. Talk talk that through for me. Gosh, she's fantastic. I mean, first of all, uh, what's Donald Trump's claim? I'm a great negotiator because I'm a billionaire. Well, all right, so Oprah's worth more than Donald Trump, and she started with less because Donald Trump's father is an extremely successful developer in New York City that set his son up in a very good fashion. That is not to diminish any of his accomplishments. Regardless of who somebody is, I'm happy to give them their due. Uh, Oprah Winfrey started in a far worse place than Donald Trump did. All right, so examples of Oprah Winfrey as a negotiator. She gets Lance Armstrong to come on camera and say, yes, I don't. Say yes to every question. Getting him to come on was a negotiation in advance. I happen to be acquainted with Lance Armstrong. I sat next to him on a plane. We hit it off. I've been on his podcast. I like the guy. That was a great negotiation. Oprah Winfrey has negotiated with celebrity after celebrity after celebrity to be on her show. She's got a history of dealing with the most volatile people on the planet, Hollywood celebrities. How many of them are mad at her? Oh, I don't know of any. I know of two very specific detailed conversations where she took very well-known celebrities to the woodshed and nobody knows about it. It was about whether or not they were going to be on her show and the conditions that they were going to be under the show, on her show under. 
And that was a negotiation. And nobody knows about that. That's the sign of a great negotiator. Somebody who works something out, somebody who made a lot of money, somebody who traveled a lot of distance, and somebody who has great relationships. And that's why I think Oprah Winfrey is one of the greatest negotiators on earth. I love it. She actually just had a new special on last night dealing with all the sort of racial apartheid in our country right now. And, and she was managing it like a general and an army just effortlessly. One of the things I think is really interesting this time, a lot of people would say FBI hostage negotiation, bring it to the business room. Uh, sort of cute. I get it. But it's, it's way more than that. Because as I look into particularly the word I've heard more, I'm probably just aware of it. But the word I've heard more than ever the last week has been empathy. We got to find empathy. We got to find out what it's like to walk a day, a week, a mile, and sometimes a lifetime in someone else's shoes. And so tactical empathy is the move that you push the FBI into negotiating with. Let's talk a little bit about tactical empathy and some of the strategies that you use within that. Well, and even more, we knew it was tactical empathy at the time, but we've really called it out specifically when we're talking about applying it to business and personal life. I got to tell you something, everybody in hostage negotiation, we thought our stuff worked because it required a crisis situation and someone desperate. And it wasn't until Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics in 2002 that I started to see and have outside evidence that it wasn't crisis, it was just people. Kahneman wins the Nobel Prize for, among other things, saying a loss thinks twice as much as an equivalent gain. What does that mean? What that means is people are driven by loss or their perception of loss or their fear of loss. He won the Nobel Prize over this, and it wasn't for crisis negotiation. It was for human nature behavior. Well, hostage negotiation, I was like, oh, well, they always taught me to look for the loss. I just thought it was bad guys. It's people? So then neuroscience comes along and begins to back up how the brain is mapped out, mapped out largely negative. Hostage negotiators were taught to listen for the emotions. Well, the emotions were always negative in crisis negotiations. Well, of course, it's a crisis. They're going to be negative. But wait a minute. Neuroscience tells us we're predominantly driven because 75% of our emotional wiring is dedicated to negative thoughts. Now, that's not psychology. It's not hostage negotiation. It's actually hard science from neuroscience. So it ends up being... These strategies worked in hostage negotiation, not because it was a crisis, but because we were dealing with people. Oh, well, now as people, we're in a crisis. You know, the only advantage now in the pandemic and all these is the thing that has always been our enemy, comfortable inaction. John F. Kennedy has a great quote from the 1960s, the risks and costs of comfortable inaction far outweigh action making a mistake, however you put it. I wish I could remember the rest of the quote. Comfortable inaction is our enemy. But in normal circumstances, the pain is not so acutely felt. It's a boiling frog analogy. We can handle the incremental increase in pain until we're shocked at how much we're putting up with. In today's environment, everything is accelerated and we've got to make decisions. In the book, you also talk about, and I thought it was fascinating, when someone gets abducted in a kidnapping, you would think the family thinks that the kidnapper has the upper hand and you sort of start to undress that logic pretty quickly. I found it fascinating. Let's talk about that. Yeah. You know, it's kind of crazy. First of all, 
Everybody knows that cash is king. You know, who's got the leverage? Person with the money. Well, first of all, the hostages family are the ones with the money. So there must be an advantage there. Now, who's got the advantage in a buyer's market and a, or a seller's market? Well, as it turns out, it happens to be a buyer's market. There's only one buyer for this product. When you're the only buyer on planet Earth for a particular item, who's got the advantage? So there's two reasons that everybody recognizes in business why the hostages family should have all the advantages here. But because emotions get dropped into the middle of this, people lose sight of who's really got the advantages, who's got the upper hand in this negotiation. But I couldn't go to a hostage family and say, hey, guess what? It's a buyer's market. You guys got all the advantages here. <laughs> I can't take that approach because it's logical and logic doesn't get through people's brains. You know, you take an emotional intelligence approach in and the crazy thing, how could I get them settled out really fast? Calling out the negatives. I'd walk in and they'd say, you know, we're scared. We're afraid. We're worried about our, our, you know, our son, our husband, our father. And I'd say, perfect. I need you to be afraid. So be more afraid. I need you to be even more afraid than you are now. And they'd go, what? That's stupid. When somebody goes, what? That's stupid. They've just snapped back into a calm frame of mind. So I snap them back into a calm frame of mind. They don't even know I've done it because I've gone in on a completely different approach. So kidnapping negotiations, once I really understood the dynamics, we had the advantages. You talk about how most kidnappers will come in and make a, a demand for $2 million, $5 million, let's say on a Monday, and then by Friday, you've gone down to a way lower number. Give us an example of that, and I love the humanity of, of how you're able to get them down by a Friday. There are social dynamics that affect everybody's decision-making. You know, when do you want the money? Why do you want the money? What's going on in your life? It's crazy. And, and the first time I got turned in onto this, I'm working at kidnapping in Guatemala. My partner's down there, and we're going back and forth. And he tells me, he says, look, and this is like a Tuesday or Wednesday. He says, this thing's going down by the weekend. And he says, the locals have told me this thing is going to go down by the weekend. And I'm, I remember at the time, I'm on the other end of the phone. I'm like, how? How do they know that? And my partner starts to laugh, and he says, because they know that these guys want to party on Saturday night. They, they know that, you know, like, these are criminals. They want to go drinking on Saturday night. So I'm like, get out of here. And then I thought, yeah, that's going to be where, you know, bad guys, they like to party on the weekend just like the rest of us. You know, people want to let loose on the weekend. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. So I started looking for that, and I'm seeing that pop up everywhere globally. And then I'm watching Hazy Revolving Door at the time. Bad guys are just, they're in business. They happen to be in a kidnapping business. You know, they're, they're commodities traders. It sounds really harsh and insensitive, but to them, that's what it is. And that's what empathy is really about. What is it to the other side? doesn't matter what it is to the, the rest of the world. It doesn't matter what it is to a neutral third party. It doesn't matter what it is to you. What it matters is what it is to them. What it is to the other side is it having to be what they do for a living. They work hard all week long. Everybody in Haiti is partying on Saturday night. If they got money to go to the bars, they're going to party. Bad guys want to go too. So, now we look at this dynamic. They're going to ask for a lot at the start of the week. They're going to chill out. That you know, they're not ready to cut the deal on Monday or Tuesday. They just you know, they're kind of getting over the weekend. They're trying to decide, you know, is the girl they're looking at going to go out with them? You know, are they going to get a date? All the same things. This thing's going to get serious about Thursday. 
They're going to really want the money by Friday. They could probably get through Friday night, but they're going to settle for sure by Saturday morning. <laughs> time after time, you know, we, we pound them down and then we make the deal on uh, Saturday morning. Yeah, because I already missed one night of partying. They don't want to miss the only other one for the weekend, right? Exactly. You missed out on Friday night. You're going out Saturday. It's so funny how that totally makes sense. And at the end of the day, it's, it is so chilling to think about it, but that's just their business. Their business is kidnapping people and trying to make as much money as possible. The first time that occurred to me, I remember very distinctly, I was in a training for kidnapping negotiations. And inside the first hour, we're getting a briefing from the guy that's running a program. He was a mentor and a friend. He said, you know, wherever you go, they're going to be an expected opening demand. There's going to be an expected price percentage of that demand. And there's going to be an expected amount of time that they're going to want it to take. And you need to go to the State Department. You need to go to the law enforcement in the region. And you'll be able to get a really good idea of those three things. And I'm sitting there. I grew up in an entrepreneurial environment. My father had his own business. I, went, you know, I studied business in college. And I just remember being shocked and thinking that it's a market. You know, what have I got myself into? They're marketing human beings and they're treating them like commodities. I just remember being blown away by it. And I thought, all right, that's the game. You know, get it, understand the rules, get in the game or, or don't play. That's the game. Let's talk about Haiti for a second. So I had my first, I've been in the Dominican Republic a few times. Actually, I had a friend of mine kidnapped there and put in jail for like two years. I thought it was a little less dicey in the DR. And, and I guess it is. Haiti is one of the most unique places I've ever been. We did a, uh, I made a documentary. We filmed a human trafficking raid, raided the largest organized crime ring in Haiti with Haitian special forces and U.S. Navy SEALs and other things. That's a crazy place. When you were there, it was even, I think, even crazier. Talk about what was going on in Haiti when you were doing a lot of kidnapping work there. You know, they got some things that have become embedded in their system that they're having a tough time getting out of. And again, this is people getting used to the status quo. The devil known is better than the unknown. Human beings like, I can cope with this. If it changes, I don't know that I can cope with it. And people hang on to some of the worst conditions once they've gotten used to them. And they get, you know, they get issues with everything that they're doing across the board. And they have had a, they've had a tough time getting out of it. They've been, the U.S. has been involved in Haiti for over 100 years. You know, you, you go in Washington, D.C., and on most of the military memorials, somebody's got a date when they went into Haiti to try to help. And it's crazy that it's on the same island. The DR and Haiti, Dominican Republic, they are on the same island. And one was a Spanish colony and the other was a French colony. And, and I've had people in the past tell me that the residue, what's left over from Spanish colonies, English colonies, and French, by and large, French colonies have fared poorest globally. Uh, and the English, like them or not, they set up systems at work, and the French did not. It's the only place I've ever seen people shaking machine guns and burning tires in the middle of the road, and it, everyone just trying to get around them because you got to get, got to get to the other side. Yeah, if somebody, if somebody was burning a tire, shaking a machine gun in New York City, they think the sky was falling. And in Haiti, they just like, I, I, I got to be someplace. I got an appointment. Get out of the way. And just drive it around. It's crazy. It is nuts. After we did that raid, they say, okay, great. Now you need to leave as soon as possible. They're like, why? We're like, we don't know what happens next. We're like, oh, great. So we're like, 
fighting for flights out of the country. Uh, you can see that raid in the movie Operation Two Saint, by the way, on Amazon. Anybody who wants to check it out, it was a. Uh, it was cool. I'm gonna check it out myself. A once and only once in a lifetime experience. I promised my wife. Now, hey, hey, you've done more than me. It's all good. I got grounded when I got home because I didn't tell my wife exactly what we were doing. But hey, you know, it worked out. I asked her. I said, "Did you sleep well?" She said, "Yes." Yeah. Said, "You're welcome." That wasn't the answer she wanted. <laughs> um, you have a concept that didn't quite make it in the book, but it's one of my favorite concepts we talked about called favorite or the fool. Yeah, man. If you don't know who the fool in the game is, it's probably you, right? We have come to discover that every negotiation has got a favorite and a fool. Probably no less than 20% of opportunities that come anybody's way. The opportunity was never there to begin with. You know, it was a fake opportunity. You were the rabbit. You were the fool in the game. You were the comparison. Either to the favorite could be another company, another person. The favorite could be the status quo. Many cases, the favorite is the status quo. This gets us back to people the devil known is better than the devil unknown. You got to figure out whether or not there's ever the deal was ever there. Are they going to make a deal? Are they going to make it with you? Those are the two critical issues that have got to be answered in favor of the fool. And so how do you figure that out? If working with you would be the first time they've ever done anything like that, probably not. Do they have a trusted advisor? What's a trusted advisor's recommendation? You know, the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior, which again, did they ever work with anybody like you? Have they done it in the past? People, how you do everything is how you do anything. Past behavior. You know, all these things that we know to be true then begin to be layered into this idea of the favorite of the fool. And they may not be meaning to play you for the fool. That's the harsh part. You know, my company, we recently interviewed three HR consultants. The last HR consultant, our initial recommendation from our trusted advisor was, I'm going to turn you on to two companies. One of them is the one I think you should go with. They're the best one. But I'm going to give you this other company also as a contrast, just in case, but also so you can see the contrast to the company that I'm recommending you to. So the last guy's a fool in a game. He's supposed to demonstrate what we don't like. So we know what we don't like looks like. And I can remember in the, in the conversation with this guy, thinking to myself, am I playing this guy for the fool? No, I'm a good person. I don't play people for a fool. But then I had asked myself the hard question. Is this guy ever going to get our business? No, he's never going to get our business. I guess you're planning for the fool. No, I wouldn't do that. So the whole favor of the fool, what people have trouble wrapping their mind around is like, I can't see people doing that because I wouldn't do it. Well, first of all, you don't do it intentionally, but you probably do it by accident on a regular basis. It's called due diligence. Oh, well, I'm entitled to do due diligence. Well, how do you do due diligence? You talk to people you're not going to hire. That's how you do due diligence. So it's a big issue. And everyone that we've turned on to this concept, we're running fool in the game numbers as high as 80%. Wow. So even if it's only 20%, what would happen to your effectiveness if you could get 20% of your life back? Uh, be a lot. I mean, that's well, out of every 10 days. I mean, it's two more days. That's one more week or weekday in the mix. Yeah. 
Yeah. So if there's anything to it at all, and, and the reason why we actually, we say the number is at least 20%, uh, somebody turned me on to a book called The Challenger Sale, where they pulled the data and their specific pulling of the data. Now, how did they pull the data? They asked business executives, how often do you solicit RFPs? Do you talk to companies when you're never going to give them the business? It's only due diligence only. They will never get it. Or you just want free consulting. And they got the executives to admit to doing it 20% of the time. Now, if you look at that question, they said, how often do you lie to people? And they admitted to 20%. So that number ain't less than 20. It's got to be higher because people are not going to over-exaggerate or they're not going to exaggerate how often they lie. They're going to underestimate. So I'm at home right now. You know, quarantine's more or less over. I actually take my first trip tomorrow. You know, but it's still a lot of uh, social distancing and other things going on in the world, which is is good. I'm not passing any judgment on that. But you know, while we're home, my wife has started to realize everything she wants to change about the house, of course, right now, right? Because she's in it 24-7. And so I think right now, two of my three kids are playing video games straight across. Every now and then you'll hear like a victory yell. I try to t- give them to calm it down. But then she actually has a consultant here right now looking at how to redo the pantry and the laundry room. And we've had three people come in so far. And she said, hey, should I get more than one person? I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, I want to see one of them might have a great idea. One might have something we don't we hadn't thought of. But she's even feeling guilty because she's like, I sort of have a company in mind I want to use. And I said, I get it. But our job is to give everybody a fair shake. But you do go through that process, especially when it comes to free quotes, right? Or, or free proposals. It's like, well, the more the merrier. However, in, in most business scenarios, I know me, if there's someone I know and I trust, if someone's forcing me to get three or four more proposals, it's going to the guy I trust. I'm just doing the other crap just because I have to. Yeah. Or what if they have an idea? What are you going to do? You can take that idea to the person you trust. Right. And that, that's what people do. And you're not, you're not mean-spirited. I mean, you're trying to look out for your best interests, or just willing to accept human nature as it is. Nobody's pointing any fingers, but let's accept human nature for what it is. Ignore human nature at your peril is what we counsel people. We could probably have a really interesting podcast if I went and got the closet consultant who's here and brought him in and put him on the mic. All right. I love this entire concept of labeling that I learned from you at Dan Sullivan's event, obviously in the book. It's part of tactical empathy. I don't want to explain it too much, but so I'll let you do it. But let's talk through that a little bit. It ended up being one of our superpowers. And the thing that I love it, not just because it's a superpower, but when we first started, I actually just thought it was the least important of our skills. We got a specific toolkit, specific set of skills. And labeling is just calling out what you hear, what you see, what you feel. And not in an accusatory way. And we refer to it sometimes as how do you deal with the elephant in the room? Well, call the elephant in the room out. And so you say, it seems like there's an elephant in the room. And people then go kind of like, yeah, you know, yeah, interesting. Okay. And it immediately puts it in context or diminishes it. If you disagree with me, if I say, and I think you're wrong, but what I think is not empathy, you know, what's your perspective? Now I'll find out what's causing you to disagree. Most people, even if they mean well, will probably say, well, why do you say that? Well, unfortunately, why is accusatory word? You're going to pop them back. You're going to knock them back a bit. Or even if your your emotional intelligence is high enough that you come to learn why is an accusatory word, you say, well, what makes you say? Even that's a bit of a question. The people's guard comes up. 
But if I say to you, seems like you got a reason for saying that. It's the maximum chance that you're going to drop your guard and lay everything out. And that's the magic of a label. I just sort of kind of labeled something. I just took a wild, emotionally intelligent guess, emotionally educated guess. If you said it, you must have a reason. So it seems like you got a reason. Something that innocuous will create a game-changing moment in a, in a negotiation, in any conversation. A great example in today's environment with all the different protests and everything. It lets someone else know without agreeing with them that you that you see them and you hear them and you think you understand where they're coming from, which then actually is a human device for them to actually validate that for you by telling you more. Yeah, yeah. And, and you need to get more. And, and people want to be heard. People protest because they're not being heard. Now, if you make people feel heard, that begins to put them in a position where you're like, all right, so let's collaborate. Because, you know, one of the issues right now is that's out there is like defund the police, defund the police. That what they want is progress. If uh, any politician were to stand up in front of protesters screaming to defund the police and say, you guys feel betrayed, you feel let down, you feel like you're an endless cycle that nothing will cure short of getting rid of the police department. Well, what'll happen on a protester's side is they'll go like, they'll go like, yeah, that's right. And then they'll go like, well, wait a minute. We still need law enforcement. What are we going to do now? You skip over the middle part, which most politicians these days are trying to do. Let's skip the middle part of making people feel heard. And let's just go to no, we're not defunding the police. You gave people no reason to believe that you understand at all. They will get there once they feel it. Got that. One of the things I love about your story that I think is worth talking about is that you were first told no when you wanted to be a negotiator and your superior told you that sort of as a throwaway, it sounded like if you're even interested in trying this, you need to go work at the suicide hotline. Uh, that to me is just yeah. fascinating. And you did it, which ended up landing you a job. But there's obviously, I bet there's a great need for people in that field. Like, I would be afraid even where to begin. That sounds like so scary. Uh, maybe promote the, the civic duty of doing that or something for us here. Let's do it for mercenary reasons. Actually, if you go to a suicide hotline for mercenary reasons, you will do really well. Because you're going there to learn a skill. I went there to learn. I didn't know it at the time. I went there to learn empathy. I went there to learn emotional intelligence. All I wanted to do was be a hostage negotiator. Why did that make me an advantage? I could really pay attention to what they said to do. I didn't care what worked. All I wanted to know was what worked. As soon as you don't care what works, you pick it up really fast. And I have one of my students now who changed her whole career path, one of my students from Georgetown. I kept talking about empathy's effectiveness in business negotiations. And she thought, well, let me do a special study within the university. I'll do it for credit. I'll go study the effects of empathy on negotiations. I'll go volunteer to Suicide Online. I'll find out for myself. She wrote the study, and the, the conclusion of her academic study was empathy saves time. And then she went like, the cow. I guess this stuff really works. She's since gone on. She's written a book about using empathy herself. She's made an entire career about making people better communicators just from the original idea that empathy saves time. So 
go to a crisis hotline to learn how to save time, to learn how to have better relationships, to learn a great skill. And you're going to get amazing benefits out of going there. And then you'll be able to feel good about being a better human being because you'll actually help people at the same time. And by you doing really good means you've saved a lot of people from suicide, right? Yeah. Or just, and actually I was at a crisis hotline, which meant you save people from angst. Like some people might not be suicidal, but they're so stressed, they become completely dysfunctional. And you're going to help those people too. You're going to help them take a step in the right direction. Love that. Another mutual friend of mine and Joe Polish's that you might know, Dr. Ned Hallowell, top ADHD expert in the world. Uh, he talks about when you are worrying about something in your mind, it's worry. The moment you turn that worry into conversation between two people, it's problem solving. And I love that point of view, uh, just from even from that the hotline point of view, when someone picks up the phone and obviously they're at their wit's end when they call a random stranger to talk about it and they turn that worry into conversation it's problem solving. So another strategy for those of you listening, if if you're noticing strange behavior or someone, especially in these hard times from quarantining and from business being down, the economy uncertain, racial injustice in the world, a lot of people are balling this all up inside and that's not a great way to deal with it. So try to start some conversations with them because once you start the conversation at the very least, you can get some empathy working and learn from them. And at some point it becomes possibly some problem solving one of the other strategies you talk about, Chris, is the two magic words getting someone to say, that's right in a negotiation. Share that with us. Yeah, you know, and, and the critical issue is that there's a world of difference between that's right and you're right. Like if somebody says you're right to you, you're pitching, you're convincing, you're explaining. You know, Ronald Reagan said a long time ago, if you're explaining, you're losing. So it's just, if somebody says you're right to you, you're on the wrong track. Now, when you're trying to articulate what their perspective is, summarize their view, their pitch, get them, make them feel understood. When somebody feels understood, and that's a critical issue, not do you understand, did you make them feel understood? Huge difference there. When they feel understood, they say that's right. And every time somebody says that's right, they feel bonded to you on some level, to some degree. You get little that's rights, you get massive big that's rights. But every single time somebody says that's right, they're telling you that you get them. You make them feel understood. And that's what really triggers changing people, triggers people's ability to cope with their problems. So, you know, in the conversations that you were just referring to where you talked about how do you get people into problem solving, don't give them advice. Hear them out. There's a huge difference. If you're hearing them out, you'll kick their ability to cope into gear and they will be highly appreciative towards you in a way that they don't even completely understand. But your relationships will get better simultaneously. Not only will you solve problems by not giving advice, giving advice also kind of generally is not great for relationships. Something nobody likes hearing advice. So there's a huge difference there. And, and not only will it help people solve problems, exactly as you said, but they're going to feel better about being around you. I love that. One of my friends and I were talking the other day, and of course, Dan Sullivan came up and he was talking about great coaching isn't having answers. It's, it's asking the right questions. No one really comes to you for answers. They come to you to help them work through the things they can't see clearly, but only their perspective is what will get you to uncover the answer you've been looking for. 
you know, that's one of the reasons why being around Dan Sullivan is just awesome. I mean, you just start soaking up his thinking. He's got such a great demeanor, and you listen to him. And, and by the time he says something a couple of times, you're like, wow. All right, I could use that. That's cool. Yeah, I love being around Dan. Uh, so I actually, uh, he's interviewing me at uh, three o'clock this afternoon for his podcast. So we'll see where it leads. Let's go to one more concept. Uh, obviously, I appreciate you spending time with us. Make sure you go buy the book, Never Split the Difference. Chris also has a great master class. Listen to the audio, buy the book, do everything he says. And hopefully we're going to put together a cool documentary project here maybe later this year uh, that we'll share with you as that comes about. I'm, I, I'd love to teach more of these concepts to the world. Cause I think there's so the nuance in them is amazing. And I think the book does an amazing job of, of sharing that out, but I love having the conversation and seeing the human interaction side of it as well. So I'm going to keep bugging you until we try to figure that out. And so the, the last one I'm going to get to is it's a very common, I guess, misnomer that in selling and sales, you should try to get people to say yes. And it, we all know it when, especially it's such an overused tactic that everyone say, yes, say I, or a salesman trying to get you to say yes. And you automatically start feeling the wall closing and you start feeling like, wait a second, this is not for me. This is for them. They are trying to manipulate me. And we've all seen it. And if you're not very skilled in sales, let us both tell you right now, like a phone salesman, great at it, like hard closing salespeople, the person who comes to sell you the water filter at your house or now probably over Zoom because they can't come to your house, but they have a script. And their job is to get you to say yes over and over again. So it's harder for you to say no. Not only is it manipulative, but you start feeling that you're being manipulated. You start to feel like you're not in control. Chris, talk about the opposite of that and what you guys found out when you started asking the opposite that seems counterintuitive, but asking no oriented questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this yes battering. I mean, even the people that do it and they're good people, they're not trying to manipulate others. The problem is that everybody's battered by yes, you know. It's like bad. Everybody's a battered child. If they're a good person and you want to give a battered child a hug, what's that battered child going to do when you raise your arms to hug them? They're still going to flinch. So everybody's yes battered. The crazy thing is, though, the exact opposite happens when people say no. They don't flinch. They feel safe. You know, people get into what other people call no mode. You know, I, I got a client on the phone one time called and I said, yeah, you know, we can't get anywhere with these people. He's dead. No to whatever we say. And I'm like, cool, change your questions. Like, no, nah, that's not going to work. I go, yes, it is. It's gonna, it is going to work. And they went from, do you agree to, do you disagree? Are you for, are you against? Does this look like something that would work for you to, is it a ridiculous idea? And we started road testing this and get an instantaneous response, an instantaneous problem solving and instantaneous moving forward. When people say no, they feel safe and protected. No is protected. So what happens when somebody feels safe and protected? They think because they, they're in a position where they feel under no assault. They don't feel like they're being manipulated. Exactly what you said before. People do not feel manipulated when they say no. So, you know, if I say to you, you know, is this a stupid idea? You'll say, no, it's not a stupid idea. Let's do it. Or you'll say even better, no, it's not a stupid idea, but here's what the problems are. And you will lay those problems out completely freely because having just said no, you feel no further sense of commitment to lay the rest of this out. You actually feel a sense of relief because then you feel like you put it off on me. Like, all right, so here's the problem. Solve the problems and then we'll see where we are. You know, that's a great collaboration. So 
getting people to say no and then pursuing how they respond at that point in time, because having been made to feel safe and protected by saying no, they can then be very honest with you and you can figure out whether or not you can work things out. Great advice. One of the things that this all strikes me as is part of a, you know, a strategy that I always use because it's the right thing to do, but most people hold back truths in selling. I like to tell people the unvarnished truth. Like people right now, we're, we're working our agency, we're helping them create their own podcasts, their own blogs and things. And I'm saying, hey, look, just so you know, this is probably a one to two year investment before you really start seeing return on it. And everything you get before that, we'll just call it a lucky fluke and I'd be really happy for you, but just go ahead and expect it to take that long. And it just takes so much of the pressure out of the conversation because you're just being honest with people and you're, and you're giving them, I, I don't know, I guess like when I'm, if I'm selling you a house and I say, Hey, here's all the good stuff. Here's the really crappy stuff. I just want you to know ahead of time, make your decision. It's such an easier way to build trust with people. And I've just, I've always just found it the best way to deal. I, I don't even, I don't know how it relates, but these strategies strike me as doing the same thing. I'm in complete agreement with you on all human interaction. And you, you sort of, you hit on kind of one that I talk about a lot because I got a lot of stuff going on in the real estate industry with a, with a colleague named Steve Schulg. And we're trying to get people exactly to that point. If there are any real estate agents, look, a, a full fee real estate agent is worth every dime if they're any good, because that's going to be a difficult journey. Most real estate agents go, ah, you know, when the deal is signed, a real estate agent wants to call somebody and say, you got the house. No, they didn't get the house because deals fall out of escrow all the time. You're getting ready to run the gauntlet and it's going to be tough. And an agent that with a signed deal says, you got the house. Unfortunately, he's lying to him at that point. But the agents that do great are like, all right, so look, this is going to be a process. Just like what you said with the podcast, this is going to take two years of work. It takes less than that, then we had a great time. And, you know, anything that happens good in the meantime, you know, that was a temporary spike. But here's what we're faced with. Now people can cope. And real estate agents just say like, all right, so there's going to be a difficult process here. We're going to try to get this signed. We're going to get the best price we possibly can. Houses fall out of escrow all the time. So we got to be careful about how we get into escrow and we've got to handle this gently so people don't get bent out of shape and we lose this deal. Human beings are ridiculously resilient as long as they don't get caught off guard. They don't get mad over bad news. They get mad at getting caught off guard over bad news. Ah, that's a very good distinction. It also strikes me as really interesting in big transactions. So the moment someone signs on, with a college football team or signs on to go to the combine or signs on with a pro football team or gets a record deal or gets a publishing deal. Most people think that that's the end of the road. That's literally, you've just been invited to play the game and now you have to know how to play the game. And there's so many parallels to that where people think I've now made it, but really the door has just been opened and you don't know any of the booby traps that lie beyond that door. So having the right representation, I would, I know you'd say the same with the book deal, with your real estate. I mean, these are major transactions in your life. I sort of laugh at most athletes who try to go through life without either an agent, especially a good coach. I mean, these are very complex worlds with high stakes. You got to have the right coaches. You got to have the right people in your corner. I got to figure out, maybe we'll talk again sometime how all these worlds collide because it really is just when the door opens, now the game's on. That's a great metaphor. And that's a thousand percent agree. thousand percent. Excellent, man. Well, hey, thank you a ton for joining me. Make sure you go check out Never Split the Difference. You will not regret it. Feel free to give us some comments below. Uh, let us know what you're thinking. Chris, as always, man, thanks so much for your time. Nick, always good talking with you. Thanks, man. All right, brother. We'll see you guys next time on 
Now to next. Take care. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes.